0: You would to Nehemiah chapter thirteen, the final study here in the book of Nehemiah. Next week we take off and we head towards uh, the book of Hosea, which I'll give you a little a little hint. Uh, the book of Hosea will take us back in time almost four hundred years, and so uh, we're going to be heading backwards uh, as we go to the chronologically backwards anyway, as we go to. Uh, Go off to the book of Hosea, and as we begin a a series of studies, it will be in the Minor Prophets. And so uh, tonight, dedication to Reformation, and as we finish this final study last week, we saw that profession that we have of Christ leads us to repentance, confession, which leads us to possession, in other words, attaining those things uh, that God has for us in our lives, and to sanctification, that's to becoming more saintly or more Christ-like, uh, which eventually gives us those gifts, that possession that we have in Christ, which leads to our perfection. And so we're working now towards that perfection that we have in Christ. And so as we're gathered in this place, as you spend your time uh, in the word, as you pray, as you fellowship, all those types of things, uh, as you understand the word and take it into your heart, um, you, you're working towards perfection. But there's something that that seems to be happening in most everyone's life. that, From time to time, uh, we make promises to God. Remember the solemn covenant that was made just two chapters ago and how the people promised, oh, we'll never do this. We're going to do that. We're going to stand absolutely rightly and correct for the Lord in all that we say and all that we do. And then ultimately, we're going to find out tonight that after they made that solemn oath, as they made that promise, uh, Nehemiah is going to leave the city of Jerusalem. He's going to take some time and go back, because remember what he promised, Artaxerxes. He says, I'll come back to Babylon. You let me go. My word is true. I want to honor my God, and so I'll come back. And he does that. Chapter 13, we find out that while Nehemiah is gone, uh, guess what happens in Jerusalem? The people turn right back to the very things that they've already been delivered from. And, and that is an unfortunate pattern in Christendom as well. And so this reformation, that and, and we need to see it this way. There are times in our lives when we need to simply take stock of where we are, what we're doing, why we're doing it, look at what God's word says, pray, seek the counsel of godly people, and then change what needs to be changed. That's called reformation. You've got something that is. And you want to turn it into something that it should be, you reform what you have. And, and reformation is, is a step that I think too often we forget because here's what happens to a lot of people. They've been walking with the Lord. Maybe they spend a time in the wilderness, a time in the desert. And all of a sudden, they're going headlong the other direction. Praise God that if we confess, He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. Amen? And once you do that, once you say, Lord, I'm sorry, I went the wrong way, then you need to change what you've been doing. That's the process of reformation. Because if you are just listening and not obeying, if you look at the world and for the sake of comfort and for compromise and convenience, you change what you know should be true in your life, you've actually been reformed by the world is what's happened. You're not any longer being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're actually conforming to the world. And that's a reformation the wrong way. We want to be reformed the right way. And so tonight, a dedication to this reformation process. And Nehemiah is going to get in their face a little bit tonight. One of the very few chapters where you, you can look at it and go, man, that was, that was kind of harsh, a little strong. But it's always good if you happen to be that person that's wayward and sometimes you just need a slap in the head. Amen? You just kind of need a little, like, not I should have had a V8. It's your knucklehead. What are you doing? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your faithful people, and Lord, we pray tonight as we finish up this amazing book that really is just a lesson in godly leadership and living, we pray that you would bless your word as we study it. Lord, give us the true sense and the meaning, God, instruct us in our hearts, not just our minds. And God, we pray that you would reform each of us in those areas where we need a touch, God, there there are those of us who maybe even this day uh, were sullied by the world or dirtied uh, by the things in in this world. And we pray that we take the appropriate steps, the measures necessary, to make sure that we are walking in the Spirit, that we are walking as your children, that we truly do know indeed that we are uh, one day going to step into the graces of heaven. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Verse 1 here in Nehemiah 13. And on that day, they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God. Now, if you remember, this is what happened a few chapters ago. As they rebuilt the city, as they laid hold of the truths that God wanted them to hear, they said, man, we're blowing it, we're biffing it. We need to get back to the reading of the word of God. And so there in chapter 8, remember, they read from the book of the law distinctly, gave them the sense and meaning of it. They helped them to understand it. And so now Nehemiah has come back. It's probably been somewhere between 12 and 13 years that he's been gone. So there's been an an opportunity for things to be tested. Can I remind you that your life will be tested? Uh, These things that we learn as we study the Bible together, these things that you learn as you study on your own, these things that God speaks to you and as the Holy Spirit works in your life, they're going to get tested. The Ammonites, the Moabites are going to come to your house. They're going to come in the form of old friends, old ways, old words, maybe old wives, old husbands, who knows? Old things will come back. And they're going to knock on the door and go, hi honey, I'm home. And they're going to want in. It's called your flesh. It's called the old man. You're going to battle with that the rest of your days long as you take breath on this earth, praise God, we have victory in Christ Jesus. amen. So we don't have to struggle endlessly. we can have victory, we can walk in that victory but make no mistake. it's gonna get tested. It's not just going to be a breeze. you're not just going to wake up every morning there's going to be like a Jesus bubble around you and nothing ever gets in. you know sometimes people think when they first accept Christ that all of a sudden they're immune to sin. they're immune to temptation. They're immune to the carnality of the world. They're immune to the world itself, that they they kind of, you know, they have a force field. It's not true. Now, you have the weapons necessary to fight the fight, but you wouldn't be encouraged in Ephesians chapter 6 uh, the way you are. Finally, my brethren in the Lord, uh, be strong in the power of his might and take up the whole armor of God if you weren't going to get shot at. You're going to get shot at. And in this case, the people got shot at, and they started saying, well, well, don't shoot at me, I don't want to get shot, so we'll just join you. And a lot of people fall back into sin that they've been delivered from because they don't want to fight. Family of God, you must fight. If you don't fight, you won't win. You'll not be a victorious Christian unless you're willing to battle. You have to battle. Praise God, you've got the weapons of your warfare to do that with. Praise God, you have the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. Praise the Lord that God Himself in those moments of weakness will be your strength for you. You have the right weapons, but you still have to fight. That's the story of chapter 13. And they needed some serious reformations to occur in their lives. And we're going to look at them as we go through this chapter tonight. And so it goes on to say, Because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, God turned the curse into a blessing. So you remember the story of Balaam. And Balaam is hired, in essence, instead of to bless the children of Israel, to curse them. And that that he came from the, the Ammonites, the Moabites. They had hired him. He was one of them. And so what we're seeing here is those old enemies don't die easy. They still hang around. Don't forget that those old enemies that you have, and I'm not talking about people... I'm talking about the real enemy, what scripture tells us there in Ephesians 6, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, you're wrestling against spiritual warfare, is what's going on. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna see that throughout your life, and those old enemies are gonna come back. That old issue with drugs. It's going to be there. That old issue with alcohol, going to be there. That old issue with relationship, going to be there. The enemy knows exactly what to throw at you and when to throw it at you to make it effective and attractive. So I've shared with you, I'm not a huge fan of Facebook. The reason I'm not a huge fan of Facebook is because I've seen marriages destroyed by Facebook. Facebook. I'm not a huge fan of MySpace, which has kind of kind of gone by the wayside. I'm not a huge fan of social media, period, for the simple reason that it's a good place for the old enemies to hang out. And if you're on there, and we're going to have probably have a, a church Facebook page, so I'm not anti-completely these things, but you better be aware that that is absolutely a tool that the enemy can use to drag you right back to that place that you've already been delivered from can't tell you how many people, oh, you know, I just hooked up with my old boyfriend from high school, my old girlfriend from high school. Facebook has been implicated in almost 50% of the divorce filings in the state of California in the last two years. 50%. That's a lot of divorces, 86,240 of them. So almost 40,000 of them. 40,000 of them. Well, I hooked up with my old friends from high school. We went out drinking. And that doesn't lead to much good. As we saw, we need to walk in the light as he is in the light. Amen? That ain't walking in the light. So anything that takes you away from the light probably is the old man, probably is the Moabites, the Ammonites. It's the children of Balaam. you got to be careful. Now, having said that, There's a lot of good uses for things like Facebook as well. But you have to be careful. You're in a battle. Be careful. Be wise. And so it was when they heard the law that they separated all of the mixed multitude from Israel. They go, oh man, that's right. What have we done? I can't believe it. We went right back to our old ways. You know, sometimes people get on my case about being so dogmatic about sin. It's okay. You can get on my case for being dogmatic about sin because my level of expertise in dealing with other people's problems is probably a 100,000 times higher than yours. Uh, I see it every day. I watch the ruined lives. I know what messing with the past does to people. I have to sit there and weep with them while they're trying to explain why their marriage is falling apart, why their finances are in ruins, why their children are doing drugs, and why they have children uh, that they didn't even know about by somebody else. I have to listen to those things. You need to separate yourself from the mixed multitude. What is that in our day and time? That's the world mixed with the church. That That is God mixed with the mess that is this world and everything about it. It, It's time, family, we realize the danger of walking in this world. Because it's not an easy place to be a Christian. And any of you that have walked with the Lord for more than a week probably understand that. The enemy's out there going, Can I come in now? I want to come in now. I would like to come in. I'm still here. And you wake up in the morning still here i'm over here i'm over here i'm over there and so they realized oh my goodness verse four now before this Eliashib the priest having authority over the storerooms of the house of god get this remember tobiah was he a friend of the jews Um, i don't think so he had made his way into the house of god itself he was allied with tobiah He had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tithes of grain, the new wine and the oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the offerings for the priests. This guy, who was absolutely against everything the Lord stood for, was actually living in the temple. You know what that tells me? We can get pretty messed up if we hang around sin, if we make friends with the enemy. Now, does that mean that you can't have non-Christian friends? Absolutely not. Matter of fact, you're probably the best hope those non-Christians have of meeting Jesus. But you better be really careful about how far you take that friendship. Because if all of a sudden the things of God are exposed to the evils of this world, pretty soon the things of God are going to be tainted by the evils of this world. It's the way it works. And make no mistake, the enemy does not play fair. The enemy doesn't care if your life is ruined. You'll never hear that. Oh, you know, you look just like you did in high school. You haven't changed a bit. You're so cute. You're so handsome. You're hot. You going Yeah, I am. You got that right. And all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're thinking, Oh, but I'm a Christian. I would never do something like that. Then you have a lunch, then you have a dinner, then you have a date, and then your hotness gonna get tested. Be careful, okay? I'm making this real for you because this is exactly how the enemy ends up in the house of God. He ends up in your life. Because you're going around, wow, you know, Tobiah, didn't we hang out? You know, prior to this whole Nehemiah thing, I mean, you know, Nehemiah went a little overboard. He's he's kind of one of those guys that, I mean, when you talk to him, I mean, he's a good leader and all, but he, he takes it a little too far. Why don't you move into the temple? All of you know what the temple of the Lord is now. Amen? It would be y'all. You. Your bodies, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, are uh, the temple of the Lord. So when you go back to Tobiah and you say, you know what? We can be buds. He's going to move in. And you're going to have the Dickens at the time getting them out. Verse six But during all this I was not in Jerusalem, during these times that these negative reformations occurred. I was not in Jerusalem. For in the thirty second year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And then after certain days I obtained leave from the king. And so Nehemiah is is, is he's come back to Jerusalem and And you can almost hear him like Winston Churchill during World War II. Winston Churchill did a weekly radio address for the British people during World War II. And most of the time, it was something to the effect, never give up. Don't ever give up. Never surrender. We're not ever going to quit. We will not lose. Keep fighting. That was the normal end to most of his addresses. He would press the point, we're in a war, we can win the war, keep battling, keep fighting. Nehemiah comes back and you can picture him the same way. Are you guys crazy? Do you want to be Nazis? You better fight, because there's only one other option. That's losing. Not good. And I say this to you because Satan will give you no quarter in your life. Satan will give you no quarter in your life whatsoever. He, he's going to come after you. He's going to come at you. And so this period of time that's that's taken Nehemiah away during that time, sometimes people ask me, well, you know, why is it important to go to church? Read this chapter. As soon as the leader left, as soon as there was kind of a little bit of compromise that came into the church. People have a tendency to go the wrong way. One of the things that church does for you is it kind of keeps you focused in on the things of God. kind of gives you a sense, hey, the Lord's at work. You hear what you need to hear. Isn't it amazing? And probably all of you have had this experience. If you walk with the Lord for any period of time, you, you come to church, maybe you hang out with some people, you see somebody you know from church, and all of a sudden... They say something to you and you're going, man, they must have seen what I was doing yesterday. Spoke right to my heart. It's the thing that was going on with me. And all of a sudden you're like, were they watching? <laughs> no, but God was. And he uses godly people to translate that message to you. To make sure that you hear it. So that you get it. But God doesn't want you wandering away. He's a jealous God. He's jealous for you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He made a covenant and took you as his child. And in making that covenant, he doesn't want to let you go. So when anything comes to you that isn't supposed to be in your life, he's a jealous God. He's going to do some whooping. Uh, Either on you or whoever's after you. One of the two. Sometimes both. Nehemiah really closes out the historical part of the Old Testament. He is actually the last of the prophets. You're going to, you'll are gonna, you see Malachi come along. They, they're at roughly the same time, but they're going to, in essence, close out that. And what's interesting, and, I, and you need to know this, because as we go to Hosea, we're going backwards in time, but as we come to the end of the book of Nehemiah, this is about 446 B.C. It will only be about another 30 years, and the Jewish people will not have a prophet for 400 years. Because God says, look, you weren't listening. I'm going to stop talking. You think you can do it on your own? Go for it. You don't ever want to get in that place. You don't ever want to be somewhere where you can no longer hear the word of the Lord. Because if you do, then it's you and what you've already got against the enemy. Now, you can... Cry out to the Holy Spirit and you'll have extra power if you're walking with the Lord. You can read the word on your own. But I'll tell you, there's, there's strength in numbers when it comes to spiritual battle. Because I, I, the church is just like a hospital. One day you're going to be in here bandaging somebody. The next day you're going to need to be sewn up yourself. Because you've had the spiritual beating that that person had the day before. And so it didn't take very long for the people to slip back into their old ways. And, and as they do that, uh, it's mind-boggling how these problems that we're going to see, if we could take that next slide, Lisa, that'd be great, uh, these problems that never seem to go away. And think on these things. Because the enemy isn't going to quit, he's not going to give you any quarter. He, he's, you know, when, you, when we use that term, it's actually a nautical term for maritime warfare. Not giving quarter, the ship was always divided into a quarter. There was the foredeck, deck there was the mid-deck fore, and the mid-deck aft, and the aft deck. So there were four quarters. And what would happen in maritime warfare is if you actually surrendered, you would be given quarter. You could go to a specific end of the ship and thereby declare that you're surrendering. You get the picture? The enemy gives you no quarter. There's no place on the ship of life that you can go, that the enemy says, okay, I'm not going to mess with you anymore. Even if you're on his side, you're still going to get kicked to the road. The enemy hates you. He wants to destroy you. And so even if you think you're surrendering, you're not surrendering. You're still in his sights. The same sins that ruined the national life before in their captivity, had attacked again and again and again and again. And I want you to notice these things. Pick up now. Uh, Really, it comes from verses 1 through 3, and I don't want to belabor this. They read from the book of the law again, didn't they? Didn't they already do that? Isn't it crazy how you can hear the word of the Lord, and just as Paul said, like viewing yourself in the mirror, turn right around And forget what manner of person you are. And all of a sudden you're going, how did I get here? You need to get it. You need to pack it away. That's why David said, Thy word, O Lord, have I hidden my heart so that I might not sin against you. If you want to have that strength, you need to get it. You need to be not just a hearer, you need to be a doer of the word of God. Don't test God's ability to communicate to you. I have been guilty of that at times in my life. You know, kind of pushing the envelope a little bit. I've already heard it. I know the truth. But I'm kind of like, well, maybe he doesn't mean that. Maybe he really won't do that. Maybe I'll be the one example of someone who can actually get away with that behavior, and I'm going to be fine. And all of a sudden, it's worse for you the second time than it was the first and it's worse still the third than it was the second, and so on and so forth. Get it. These guys did not get it the first time. They'd already, think of this, how many years were they in captivity? Seven, zero, 70 of them. A f- that would be probably at that time two full generations of people for the most part. I don't know if you know this or not, until the turn of the last century, not into the 21st, but into the 20th, in other words, in 1900, the average life expectancy in the United States of America was 47. 47. It's now pushing 80. But it was less than 47 then. So 70 years was at least two generations of people. And in those two generations, they didn't get any smarter. They were still dumb as rocks when it came to the things of God. They'd heard it. They didn't believe it. As we're going to see in the book of Hosea, it is the story of the idiotic kings that Israel had. The northern king of Ephraim was ruled by moron after moron, literally. It's like, oh, we'll we'll keep doing that and see if we get a different result. They were literally insane. They were despots, and they okay. Well, we'll have your son, even though you were terrible. We'll just take your son. Family of God, when God speaks, He means what He says. We need to hear it and do it. These guys didn't get it. The Second thing, they had compromised their integrity. Notice there in verses four and five what it says. Prior to this, Eliashib the priest was appointed over the chambers of the house of God. He'd been related to Tobiah. And he went right back to those old relations. He compromised himself. He's a priest in the temple. He's got no business having some guy that was one of the chief architects of the plan to destroy the city of God. Setting up house. Why, when I was teaching on Sunday, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking of all these analogies. I could have just thrown one after another. Like we think we're going to escape. We've already been delivered from something once. And family of God, you, you, you compromise your integrity whenever you return to the vomit. Whenever you dredge up that old stuff you've already been delivered from, you compromise your integrity. Don't forget that notice how Nehemiah responds to these first two things. He takes decisive action. Verse 7, And I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. You see, righteous people see things correctly. He's looking, he's going, what are you doing? Why are you bringing that into God's house? I got asked the question, you know, if we ever had somebody that came in that was drunk, would we let him stay in the church? I said, no, not if we know he's drunk. Why? Or she's drunk. Why? Not because we hate them. It pollutes the house of God. You go get cleaned up. Come on back. But don't bring your filth here. Don't bring your garbage here. And if you brought garbage with you, you keep your garbage to yourself. Pray over your garbage. Nehemiah takes decisive action. And therefore, I threw all the household goods to buy out of the room. Can you imagine? Here, here's what he does. He says, you? Are you kidding me? Not in this lifetime. As long as I'm alive, this isn't where you're living. He grabs his stuff, hucks it out into the street. And then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms. It wasn't bad enough that he was there, but he was literally defiling the house of God. Cleansed rooms and brought back into them the articles of the house of God. They'd actually taken God's things out of God's house and put in the garbage of Tobiah. That's why when somebody comes and says, well, you know, I want to do this or I want to do that. Well, if you can't validate it by God's word, then you're probably not going to get to do it in this church. God's house. We do God's things God's way. And he took decisive action because it had been defiled. Brought back in there, the Articles of God, the grain offering, the frankincense. A fourth thing, notice what happens to them. They needed serious church reform. And I want to just stop for a moment. We have a privilege that I think we sometimes take a bit too far. This is God's house. We need to make sure that we treat it as God's house. Now, I don't particularly care if you got Sorrells. I happen to have flip-flops on tonight. But I did trim my toenails just so that you guys wouldn't. It's God's house. We want to make sure that we're honoring God in God's house. That doesn't mean you have to wear a tie, but it means you honor God in God's house. And we do that where our hearts are at. Amen? So we need to honor the Lord in his house. I also realized that the portions for the Levites, it says in verse 10, had not been given to them for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back into the field. In other words, you brought in the world, you'd kicked out God out of his own house, and now all of a sudden the things that were supposed to be happening in God's house weren't happening there. And, And I want to take just a moment and say that's why we need to keep the first thing first here in the church. There are a lot of good causes, okay? I hope we find a cure for AIDS, but this is not the place that we try and find a cure for AIDS. I absolutely believe the church is supposed to be politically active in the sense that our values, the things that we know of God, need to make it into the voting booth. But that's not our primary purpose. I believe the things that we ought to be in the world should translate into action in the world. But our purpose is to preach the gospel of Christ, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to raise up the next generation to continue the process. That's what the church is for. The church can get so caught up on doing other things like putting in a bowling alley or putting in their own Starbucks in the lobby And again, I'm not so much trying to be negative here as I am trying to say we need to keep first things first. And I wonder how many missionaries aren't in the field because churches have bowling alleys and churches have Starbucks. Uh, I wonder how many things that we're doing kind of at some level don't really win anyone to Christ. They sure don't build up the church and they're not moving the next generation. We need to keep first things first. They needed reform in church in this case. They had turned one of the houses of God, the things that were supposed to be in there were for temple worship, into a place of merchandising. We'll just, uh, you know, we'll make a few bucks here. It's not the primary mission of the church. Now, did I just preach against bake sales? No. <laughs> did I say you can't have a bookstore? Of course not. I'm not even totally opposed to having some type of an outreach or a coffee shop or a restaurant. I've been in lots of them in churches that love the Lord. But you got to keep first things first. There are churches that get so far skewed that way that they stop doing the thing they're supposed to do. In this case, they'd gone all the way the other way. We need to be careful. And so I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And you got a nice room over here filled up with Tobiah stuff. And I gathered them together and set them in their place. That is a euphemism for I gave them a tongue lashing. I let them have it. I put them, what are you doing? Have you lost it? And then all of Judah brought the tithe of grain, the new wine, and the oil into the storehouse. And I appointed the treasurers over the storehouse: house. Shemaliah, uh, the priest, and Zadok, the scribe of the Levites. And Pedadiah, they sat next to him. And Hanon, the son of Zachor, And the son of Mataniah, remember him, he was the leader of the prayer team, amen? Takes the leader of the prayer team and says, you need to get these guys in there and teach them how to worship the Lord. And they were considered faithful. That is the primary necessary ingredient to anyone who wants to be in ministry, by the way. It's what the pastoral epistles say. He who desires the office of bishop must first be faithful. Because if you're not faithful, nothing else is ultimately going to matter. And I've seen I've seen pastors, unfortunately, that are unfaithful shepherds. They're they're there when things are good. They're gone when things are bad. Got to be faithful. You want faithful people, and they were considered faithful. And their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done in the house of God. For it's for the services. You, you, you see, he said, you know, guys, let's make sure uh, that we're doing what you want. God, not what we want, what you want. It's the same thing that Jesus said, by the way, in John chapter 6. I haven't come to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. It's all Nehemiah wanted. I just want to be faithful to the calling of God's place in my life. It's an absolute necessity and if we don't do it, you're not going to go very far in your walk with the Lord. You, you may even have to question whether you actually know the Lord or not. Verse 15, and in those days, they also needed worship reform. What they had done is there wasn't any time set aside for God. You know, it's interesting to me how many people can make an excuse for all the things and make time for all the things, the other things, other than making it to the house of the Lord. I cannot tell you how many different things. Well, you know, I've got uh, ladies knitting tea on Wednesday nights. I've got this. I've got that. And I'm not saying that you need to be legalistic and if you miss a service or whatever, but is it a priority for you to have some time set aside for God? It needs to be a priority for you to set aside some time to meet with God, to study his word, to pray to be in fellowship. And people always give me the, well, we have house church. That's not church. might be devotional, but it's not church. It can't even function as a church. It does not provide the same thing as church. You know why? Number one, there's zero accountability in your house church. There's accountability in the house of God. That's what's going on here. Nehemiah comes back and he goes, dude, I left you guys in charge. What in the world is going on here? This is not the Lord. It's important that we gather together. Because I know you, you know me, we can hold one another accountable. I would also like to think that in the house of the Lord, when you have somebody who's maybe spent two or three decades studying God's word, might possibly be able to share a few things about it that you probably don't know. Another good reason to actually set some time aside to worship the Lord. Corporately, what we did is we actually worship the Lord. We set some time aside to draw near to God, to come into his presence. That doesn't happen with the TV on. You, you see, they needed some Sabbath reform. In other words, they needed to spend some time with the Lord. They had forsaken that. Basically, they had said, well, you know, a week from Thursday, we're going to have church. I think. Maybe. And in those days, I saw the people of Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in cheese, loading donkeys with wine. Remember, they were commanded, keep the Sabbath day, for it is holy unto God. It was a day of rest for them. But it was holy unto the Lord. It was a sign of obedience saying, you know what, Lord? This is your day. We're going to worship you. Now for us, Paul said, I treat all days alike. No special day. So here in this church, if you look at our calendar on the website, we meet every day somewhere doing something. Take all the things that are going on in the church. pretty much every day. Set aside time for that. All kinds of burdens what they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling these things. The men of Tyre dwelt also there and brought fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah in Jerusalem. And then I contended with the nobles of Judah. Remember, he did this once before. Remember, they were like, ah, we're kind of too good to work. But they weren't too good to make money. You see, when it came to the house of God, they said, ah really into that. Will of the Lord thing? Not so much. But oh boy, Sunday because everybody's kind of quiet and we kind of have a captive audience. We'll just start up our business enterprise. Now, please again, don't take a legalistic stance here. And I'm not encouraging you to do so. But what I am saying is, God wants all of you Including a time when you can dedicate yourself to nothing else but Him. And here in this church, we gather together. If you got if you're in a home study here on Wednesday nights, you're in the men's, you're in the women's study doing all these things, if you totaled them all up, maybe you might come up with eight hours a week. That's actually what the Jewish Sabbath was. It was really the daylight hours of one day. It went from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And, of course, you're sleeping most of that time. Amen? Maybe eight or ten hours. I think it's a healthy example to say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to try and give you maybe eight hours of my week. Now, maybe that's in devotional time. Maybe that's actually here on church like you're doing right now. Maybe it's time ministering to other people. Maybe it's time in service. Maybe you should come and serve at one service. We desperately need people in children's ministry. And you go to the other. It's not too tough to come up with a Sabbath dedication to the Lord and say, God, this is your time. Here it is. I want to serve you. I want you to speak to me, and I want to speak to others in your behalf. And so he contended with them and he said, What evil thing is this that you do? Why do you profane the Sabbath day? Did your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us in this city? And yet you added the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? He says, Guys, we've already been down this road. Let me modernize it yet a little further. How many people set out to destroy their lives spiritually? Not too many. I mean, most people don't wake up and go, you know what, I'm going to turn into a flaming heathen tomorrow. But what they do do is stop giving God any time. And before you know it, the putting on the new man ceases. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, you know, I kind of like walking in the flesh. And so before you know it, the influence in your life is mostly bad. And all of a sudden, well, I'm gonna, you know, I'm just gonna cut it down to, to just Sunday. And then I'm gonna cut it down to every other Sunday. After all, we have this sport or that sport. And again, I'm not against sports. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I like sports. I play sports. I get hurt doing sports. I give offerings to the blood god. But how many people, well, you know, I'm just going to cut it down, then I'm going to cut it down some more, and I'm going to cut it down some more, and before you know it, you don't have any time for the Lord at all. That's what happened here. Be careful. Nehemiah is saying, what is this you're doing? And so it was that the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates that should be shut. So he says, no more. We're going to turn off, we're going to turn off the uh, wheels of commerce here. And charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I posted some of my servants at the gate so that the burdens would not be brought in on the Sabbath day. And now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wear lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. I love this. This is the enemy. Well, we can't go in, so we'll just set up shop right outside. I can't get in, so I'll set up shop right outside the gate. That's how the enemy works. Well, I'm not getting in, but I'll just stay right over here. And if I stay right over here, pretty soon they'll kind of peek and see what's going on outside the city. And, hmm, looks pretty good. Got some purple garments out there. I think I'll take those. And I warned them. So Nehemiah comes out to the gates. I would love this. Nehemiah comes out to the gates. Why do you spend the night? Around the wall. If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I like that. That's another way. You guys better pack your stuff and get out of here. If I find you here when I come back, you're gonna get. You're gonna get, yeah, a whooping. Gonna get it taken to you. And from that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. You, you gotta take a an absolute stand against the things that the Lord. Uh, has us stand against and for the things that God has us stand for. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go on guard at the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O God, he says again concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. And notice in this passage, it uses these things like I admonished and I reprimanded, I commanded, I stationed, I warned, I'll I'll use force against you. If I have to, I'll resort to physical violence. Again, please do not take that one. Well, you know, Jeff said, uh, use physical violence if necessary. You know, you on the parking, somebody's in your parking space. It's not what I'm saying at all. So do not misquote me, otherwise I'll have to use physical violence. It commands the Levites. He, what he's saying is, is guys, this is serious stuff. Let's treat it seriously. There was nothing indecisive about the actions that Nehemiah took. He rebukes them and he locks the city gates and he says, you know what? This isn't going to happen anymore. And then finally, in these reforms, they need family reform. And in those days, I saw also the Jews who had married the, the women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. Now, again, I, I please, 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 please don't carry this too far. Don't take the analogy uh, any further that's intended by the Lord. But what he's saying is these were all, for for our purposes here in the Age of Grace, unsaved people. They did not know the Lord. Matter of fact, they didn't care a thing about the things of God. In fact, they were very unsaved people. They were unsavory. They were so unsaved. Okay, these, These were really not good groups of people. Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. In other words, these were Jews who should be speaking Hebrew, who half of their children didn't even know how to speak Hebrew. They had been so enmeshed in the things of the world, they had gotten so caught up and intermarried, and had been so unequally yoked, that they were ceasing to even be God's kids. But spoke the language of one or the other people. And so in their homes... What language were the scriptures at the time in? Hebrew. So if you didn't read Hebrew, if you didn't understand Hebrew, how much God do you think you got on a daily basis? Not a lot. Zip. That would be like you all owning Greek New Testaments. Probably one not one person in here reads Koine Greek. And so if you picked up modern Greek and you you sit, so how long do you think you're going to sit there and read it? Not very. You're going, oh, that's nice. Kind of go on the shelf. So they had intermarried with people who don't love God. They had no relationship with God. They didn't want a relationship with God. And now they didn't even speak the language that would enable them to hear the word of the Lord when it was spoken. And so I contended with them and cursed them. And that word translated curse there in English is probably better translated, I spoke to them harshly. In other words, he didn't pronounce a curse on them. It was like, you knuckleheads, what are you doing? He was using language that was indicative of someone who was upset. This is a good way to look at it. And then I struck some of them. He's like, and I pulled out their hair. <laughs> Ow. Now, again, I am not saying we should revert back to these things, okay? Be very clear. I'm not telling you to go grab someone's hair or punch them. But I grew up in a day and time when you got your hair pulled. When you disrespected somebody in public, you got backhanded. You got slapped. I'm not sure that it was necessarily all that bad, quite frankly, given what I've seen in public schools today. Maybe we ought to bring back a few of those paddles with the holes in them. Brother Dave down here saying, yes, amen, yes, amen, hallelujah, preach it. Yeah, it's like, you know, there are times when, when the only way, the only path of knowledge is through the seed of knowledge, which is on your backside. You know, it's just like it ain't getting there. And so he said, I made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters as sons for yourselves. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin by doing these things? Amen. Remember how much junk came into the lives of the Jewish people because Solomon did this very thing? They needed family reform. Again, let me just strongly caution you. You are playing with absolute fire as a Christian when you are entertaining being in a relationship with someone who is not saved. You may be one of those few that somehow they come to Christ and you end up happily ever after. But I can tell you, your percentages are stacked horribly against you. Horribly against you. And so scripture says, Be ye not unequally yoked, a believer to an unbeliever, for what has light to do with darkness? What has what well, has salt water and fresh water to do with one another? You, you can't mix them. Be careful. Because ultimately, you're going to need to keep those wedding vows, and you may have to keep those wedding vows at great, ex- great cost to yourself. Because you did the very thing that got everybody in trouble from then to now. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? And yet among the nations, there is not a king like him who is beloved of God, and God made him king over Israel. And nevertheless, pagan women caused him even to sin. Yikes! This is not a male-female chauvinist thing. You could have just as easily written it the other way around. This is just simply the culture of the time. It was unequally yoked was what they were looking at. They needed to make sure that their family stood for the Lord. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil and transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? One of the sons of Jehida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, and therefore I drove him from me. He said, this is how bad it's gotten that the high priest's kids are marrying the most heathen people that we can find. Yikes. Family reform. They needed reformation, and Nehemiah was the guy to bring it. Let me bring up that next slide. I want to just give you some closing thoughts. Verse twenty nine it says Remember them, O God, because they have defiled the priesthood, the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites, and thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. I cleanse them of how much? Everything pagan. Remember what our passage was on Sunday if you were here? Do not be associated with the unfruitful works of darkness. Not even associated with. Cleansed of everything pagan is what he said. And I assign duties to the priest and the Levites each to his service to bring the wood offering, the first fruits appointed at those times. Remember me, O God. For my good. And so some principles. Some things that we can see in Nehemiah's life. And we can go through these very quickly. Nehemiah was obedient to God and His Word. Amen? If God's Word said it, Nehemiah did it. And if God's Word said not to do it, Nehemiah didn't do it. It's pretty simple. I've been sharing the last few Sundays. It's not that tough. The question is, will we be obedient to the word of God? It's not that it's vague. People always well, you know, the Bible's vague. It doesn't Yes, No, yes, it actually is not vague. It's extremely explicit in most areas of life. You may not like what it says, but if God's word says it, we do it. Nehemiah was obedient. A second thing. Nehemiah kept focused on the right issues. Don't think for a moment there weren't peripheral things that Nehemiah could have got involved in. You know, there were probably the poor people in the Hinnom Valley. And again, we have ministry to people who are less fortunate here. We do that. But it can't be the first thing. He made sure that he stayed focused on the right issues. And in this case, if the church loses its salt, how will it then be good for anything, is another way to look at it. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, look, guys. We need to remain as we are supposed to be, holy unto the Lord. Because if we lose that, then we look just like the world. He stayed focused on the right issues. A third thing. He was a man of prayer. Think about Nehemiah's prayer life. You've just heard him pray four times in this chapter. Again, we've seen him pray a total of 19 times in this book. It's like, God, remember me. Help me with this. Do not hold this against them, God. He was a man of prayer. He knew that God had the answers. He wanted to hear what God had to say. He was bold in the presence of God. Nehemiah took bold action to implement the will of God. Look at these things in this chapter. He's like, oh, no, you don't. I'll slap you in the head and pull out your hair. You come back down here to this gate, I'll be out there personally. I'll give you the staff of correction myself. He was bold. You know, sometimes there's a call for boldness. And again, please keep that. What did we learn? Speak the truth in love. Amen? So we don't want the love without the truth, and we don't want the truth without the love. We want both of them. So sometimes, like I said on Sunday, love should override everything. You should be able to speak lovingly and accomplish those things. God should be able to do that. But if you don't have love, on the other side of grace is fear. And so, sometimes the fear is necessary. Now, we're not told what Nehemiah looked like. We don't know if he was, you know, six foot four, two 285, and was built like Hulk Hogan. I, we don't know that. But I know this, what he said people did, so whether it was in his words, his deeds, his actions, his demeanor, his body language, I don't know. But I know this, he absolutely took bold action to implement the will of God. Nehemiah did not let sin feel at home. Check that out. Does Satan feel welcome in your house? I hope not. You see, under Eliashib, Tobiah was welcome. The enemy was welcome. Don't let the enemy be welcome in your house. Don't don't let him feel at home. You know, go through that video collection. Go through those magazines, those books. Maybe you got some stuff that really shouldn't be there. Does sin feel at home in your home? I hope not. The sixth thing, and it's really part of the first one. But Nehemiah believed and acted on God's word. He wasn't just obedient to it. He took it as truth. And it's a slightly different spin. In other words, when you believe something's actually true, you act on it. Seven, there can be no half measures in the Christian life. That is where most people get in trouble. You can look at it this way try and figure out how close you can get to God, not how close you can get to sin. There's no half measures. There's no playing around with it. You're either in or out. You're either for Him or against Him. Jesus said, That's what Jesus said. You're either for me or you're against me. There's no half measures. That thing is either the will of God or it's not the will of God. And it's not as tough as we make it out to be to figure out which one of those two things it is. Can't see Jesus doing it. Can't see Jesus teaching it. Can't see Jesus repeating it. Can't see Jesus preaching it. Can't see Jesus writing it down. Probably shouldn't be doing it. And Nehemiah was abandoned totally to the will of God. And in doing so, probably one of the greatest leaders in the entire Bible. If you pull up that last slide. There's some things about Nehemiah that we can repeat. He was respectful to his worldly masters. Many of you, if not most, have masters in the world who may not know the Lord. Nehemiah respected even the evil king Artaxerxes and went back and kept his word. Be respectful to people in the world. Because you'll never win them to Christ if they hate your guts. That's why when I pick on the Westboro Baptist Church, I do so because I know that they are not being used for the will of God. They are keeping people from coming to Christ by the insane antics that they undertake that are supposedly in the name of God. They are not in the name of God. I doubt seriously that any of them are actually saved. Be respectful. It's not respectful to protest military funerals. It's not respectful to, to call people racial slurs. It's not respectful to call people homophobic slurs. It is, not, it is not good that the church would be associated with those things, which then they can turn right around and go, see, that's why I don't want to become a Christian. Be respectful. Nehemiah had excellent administrative abilities. He knew what to do and how to do it. That's a lesson some of us need to learn. So I said, you get 86,400 seconds every day. Make sure to you use them wisely. If you need to make more post-it notes, I'll buy you your first pack. If you haven't figured out how to use Outlook, calendar contacts, any of those kind of things, come to my office, I'll show you. We can all afford to be better stewards of our time. Nehemiah knew how to encourage people. Man, we need that gift. Just to be able to encourage people. Notice what I did not put up there. Nehemiah knew how to make people feel good. He just got done yanking out somebody's hair and slapping them. (laughs) You know, encouragement can be strong encouragement, too. We call that an admonition or an exhortation. It's like, dude, you're playing with fire. Do that. You keep doing that, you're gonna die. Sometimes when I come home, Connie says, Hola Nacho and I say, Hola Nachina So, you know, it's just do, do that. I don't whatever you want to use, I don't care. Ma'am, Mr. Or Mrs. It doesn't matter to me. But encourage people, even if that encouragement needs to be a swift kick in the backside. It's like, dude, what are you doing? Stop it. You know where this road goes? And if they aren't sure, tell them. You got your Bible. If your Bible does not have a topical index in the back of it, I want to encourage you, get a Bible with a topical index. One of the greatest tools you'll ever ha- ever have. Oh, I think it's uh, fear. And you go back here and it says fear. And you look it up and there's like 15 verses there. And you go, oh, that's the one encourage people by taking them to God's word. You don't have to be a theologian. You just need a desire to do God's will and say, "Lord, I know there's a verse in here. Can you tell me where it is?" Nehemiah overcame opposition to his leadership. I spent a whole evening talking about that opposition. We just started this evening talking about that opposition. You're going to you're going to come across opposition. Don't forget that. Stand fast. Nehemiah focused. Consequently, you got the job done. You will accomplish nothing in life if you don't stay focused. Because the enemy is going to try and throw you off. It's like the Lord wants wants you to go one place. and The enemy wants you to go another. You need to stay focused. Because there's going to be competing world view. There's going to be con- competing thought processes on one side of your brain's going to, it's just like those old cartoons we all used to love. Those of us that are over 50 in here, and you remember the cartoons, you had the devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other. Go ahead and do it, no no, don't do it. Yeah, go ahead and do it. Christian bipolarism. <laughs> it's like I got Satan over here, an angel over there. It's going to happen. Stay focused. Finally, two things. Nehemiah encouraged a great national revival. If you're not encouraging revival in other people's lives, you might be encouraging complacency. And in order to be revived, you've got to be vibed the first time. Amen? So that means we preach Christ and Him alone crucified. That saving grace, that faith that's a gift. We, we get the basics in there. That starts Revival because it's crazy when you look around at our church and see how many people uh, in case you hadn't noticed I didn't lead most of all y'all to Christ somebody else led you to Christ and then somebody else got involved in your life and you got involved in theirs and all of a sudden there's more people saved that's how revival works it isn't the the big things that happen there have been more people who went to Christ at the camp than there have been at all the harvest crusades that have ever happened. That's a bunch of youth pastors sowing seed and watering. There's lots of ways for people to come to Christ. We want to make sure and start revival. And then finally, as we saw in Nehemiah, it was really his goal, his task, as he left Babylon, he filled God's house with people and praise. And when we do God thing, God's things, God's way, what happens? People get excited about it. We start praising the Lord, walking around, speaking songs and psalms and spiritual songs. and All of a sudden, we're all wandering around praising Jesus. It's this weird thing that happens. You don't even know why you're doing it. And all of a sudden, you're in a store someplace. You find yourself kind of humming or whistling a praise song. And somebody hears you and goes, oh, yeah, we, where, what church do you go to? And somebody else hears you and go, you guys go to church? Yeah, where, where do you go to church? All of a sudden, God's house is filled with people. Filled with praise. Amen? And so ends the book of Nehemiah. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time and this wonderful book. And Lord, as we look forward to beginning the book of Hosea next week, God, thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for your love for us, your instruction. God, we pray that you would move mightily in us and through us. Lord, help us to have bold faith. Lord, help us to be as Nehemiah was, God, no compromise of any kind. Lord, help us to obey our worldly masters in such a way that they might see those good works that we do and glorify you who's in heaven. We love you. We praise you. Lord, I thank you for these blessed saints. Pray that you would continue to encourage us. Lord, strengthen us for the battle that lies ahead. Lord, may we take decisive action against sin when we find it. Lord, cause us to stand for you in these evil days. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. And all God's people said, Amen.